This evening's talk is about investigation or discrimination of states and the creative process. What is it that enables us to move towards being a Buddha? Or as one of my Burmese teachers said, what makes one a true heir of the Buddha? There's a phrase that the Buddha used quite often, ehipasiko in Pali, which translates as come and see. Ehipasika, not ehipasiko, ehipasika. Come and see. This is an invitation to come and see, not to come and believe but to come and see for ourselves what's true. To come and see in this way requires a great interest, a great interest and a willingness and a courage, which includes a growing faith that blossoms out of our own experience. An interest, willingness, and courage to look directly, deeply, and honestly into the body, the heart, and the mind with humility, and without relying on what others say is true through something we've heard or read. To come and see in this way requires that we don't settle into the inertia of our habitual perceptions of our habitual relationships to, or our identifications with our inner and our outer experience. This interest, willingness, and courage are the qualities that keep practice alive from the very beginning and ongoing through all the years of our practice. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the discerning aspect of mindfulness, the aspect of mindfulness that's fueled by the Buddha's invitation, Ehipasika, which is the second factor of enlightenment. The first is mindfulness. The second factor of enlightenment, investigation or discrimination of states. Mindfulness is needed in all instances. And as the Buddha said, it's needed in all instances as a seasoning of salt in all sauces. He was very practical in many of his (coughs) teachings. Mindfulness is a refuge for the heart, the mind. And the factor through the whole of our practice, and through the whole of our life that really affords us our greatest protection. Investigation or discrimination of states, both bodily and mental states, is the activity of mindfulness, the discerning aspect of mindfulness. 
this aspect of mindfulness is what clearly illuminates the object of our attention. Lighting it up, lighting up <clears throat> all of our sense door and mental experiences right to their core. Showing us both their individual characteristics and their universal essence, their ultimate reality. This factor of awakening has the potential to dispel darkness. The darkness of not seeing. The darkness of ignoring how it is. Investigation eliminates bewilderment and confusion. The not seeing, not knowing of delusion and ignorance. It's kind of like walking into a pitch dark room with a bright flashlight. When things are brightly lit, what's already present is then clearly seen, is known, and confusion is dispelled. In our practice, investigation means that we experience things directly without the mediation of concept. So, an example, and this can really be a metaphor for any internal phenomena or movement in the body or state of mind, or for any object that the eye door contacts as we begin to move into seeing drawing tomorrow. So this example, a breath is known. And maybe you see it and know it at the level of simply knowing in and knowing out, which is actually still based in the world of concept. So we could say investigation without putting on the glasses. Then you put on the metaphorical glasses and directly then maybe know a long breath or a short breath or a deep or a shallow breath. You may connect simply and directly with the movement of the breath at the nostrils or maybe in the belly. Experiencing the touch sensation, for instance, in the space between the nostrils and the upper lip or the rising and falling movement in the belly or maybe in the chest. So beginning now to move from conceptualizing the breath to direct experience of it. And then you look through the microscope, so to say, with the lowest power lens. The whole in-breath might be felt and known from its beginning all the way to its end. And maybe you feel and you know the whole out-breath from its beginning all the way to its end. And maybe, much to your surprise, You find that each in-breath and each out-breath isn't necessarily the smooth, ongoing experience that you've been used to. And even though it might be quite subtle, you begin to feel it and know it clearly as maybe happening in tiny segments, such as in, 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 out, 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 rather than just a smooth flow. 
And as you come closer, getting more intimate with the experience of breath, you begin to see it simply happening in its own way, without you controlling it. The heart, mind, and body are relaxed. And there is really much interest in what's occurring. Not thinking about it. Just simply present, receptive, and interested. As you relax more, and this relaxation is essential with our practice, as you relax more with interest growing even brighter, the microscope lens powers up, so to say. The idea, the concept of breath falls away. And the mind is settled and collected. Potential distractions have little or no attraction. The subtle sensation, for instance, just below the nostrils or the rising and falling movement in the belly is very clearly felt and known with maybe the most predominant experiencing experience being a soft vibration, for instance, with each movement of the breath. Just that. Simple, but discernible. Who's breathing? Who's moving? Who sees? Who is experiencing and knowing bodily sensation? Who's hearing? Breath isn't what you thought it was. At least for the moments that you're that you've stopped thinking about it and are just simply, directly, and mindfully present. There's a clear discernment of the experience which includes a deep and complete trust. A trust that this is just enough. Nothing else needs to be done. The mind, the heart, is open, receptive, spacious, and at ease in this direct and simple connection to experience as the way of things just very naturally reveals itself. So this is our practice. This is our training. Practice which itself is very akin to creative process is a vehicle for peeling away the layers of our habitual conditioned perceptions and reactions. And so for most of the rest of our discussion this evening, I'd like to more specifically explore the creative process as practice. With mindfulness and investigation being the root from which stem the beautiful blossoms of wisdom and creative expression in their many or myriad manifestations. 
creative process as an aspect of our practice is potentially a a vehicle for peeling away the layers of our habitual conditioned perceptions and reactions. And a, a vehicle that has great potential for revealing the interdependent and selfless nature of all physical and mental phenomena. So, for instance, whether it be the immediacy and spontaneity of moment-to-moment creative visceral response through the moving body, or receiving what is seen with the eye without interposing the self, meaning contacting things directly, letting the hand and the pencil follow what the eye sees without the thought of making a picture or the thought of being creative. Or, be it trusting the process of thought and words arising as though from nowhere, from no one, thus creating the conditions for the immediacy and spontaneity of letting writing flow from this empty space. With each and all of these experiences about engaging in creative process as practice, In light of this, I think it's fair to say that the creative process is about forgetting what we've previously learned. Maybe a surprise to some of you. Forgetting what we've previously learned. Really a necessary step in responding more directly and seeing and sensing more precisely. Part of moving, seeing, drawing, and writing is forgetting. Meaning forgetting what we think we know about the subject. Even forgetting what we've been taught. Meaning in our case here, what we think we know about drawing or writing or how we should or shouldn't move the body. This type of forgetting, this forgetting, stops the mind from knowing in its habitual conditioned ways. And at this point, one is then confronted with the object itself. And one's usual way of knowing is arrested, stopped. The heart, the mind, is open, receptive, appreciative, able to respond to the inner voice, the tone, the shape, the texture, with a real genuine authority and autonomy. What is it that keeps this open-hearted being in the presence from happening? One artist's response to this question was the fear of losing 
control. I think that many people experience not knowing as feeling numb. But I can honestly say that some of the most extraordinary experiences that I've had in which truth was revealed to me all had the quality of bearing witness or just simply being there, simply being here with tremendous and yet relaxed interest, meaning a very open-hearted, connected, mindful attention and discernment and humility and no need to make meaning. That's a very important part. No need to make meaning. In our practice, and this includes the creative process as practice, until we suspend the need for meaning, we can't experience the direct revelation of insight, the direct revelation of wisdom. Though without a doubt, for all of us humans, there's an ancient and subconscious urge for creative life and inventiveness from our very beginnings. It's not so easy to be unarmed, so to say, meaning to be without our habitual ways and self-centered identifications. Fear can certainly sometimes leap up in us. And so we train the heart, we train the mind, slowly, slowly, and with great, great care to see the nature of our constraints more and more clearly and to let go. The poet Rilke exhorts us to return to things in themselves. To return to things in themselves. But the way to them can be difficult as we're faced with ourself, our seemingly set, solid self. It seems that we're overtrained regarding ourselves. We're usually the center of our attention. True. And consequently, it can be very difficult to come and see. Ehipasaka, as the Buddha invites us, to come and see beyond this notion of a self. Engaging in the creative process with joyful interest and open-hearted mindfulness can really be a wonderful vehicle towards freeing up honesty, authenticity, 
and the essence energy of creativity, all of which helps to create the conditions that allow the direct revelation of insight of the way of things. I've learned a lot from children in this area. In my early 30s, I taught art at an alternative school for a number of years. The five to eight-year-olds really loved painting. And so sometimes I'd ask them to paint in relationship to a particular theme, but often it was just free expression painting. And one morning, as I was walking around looking and commenting on the paintings in process and those that were already finished, one little boy said to me, you always like all of our paintings. How come? Well, that little boy really noticed something, and he asked the right question. Children sometimes have a way of saying things that really stop us in our tracks. So I responded. I said, yes, I do. And then I thought, how come? He asked me, how come? And I thought, how come I always like them? And I don't remember at this point, this was a long time ago, but I don't remember exactly what I said to him, but something about honesty and expressing from the inside and how could I not feel anything but appreciation. I could ask questions and occasionally make suggestions, but there wasn't anything to dislike or feel critical about because what each person painted was their honest expression at that moment. Well, this little boy seemed to understand as I spoke to him. And he kind of shook his head up and down and and then beamed at me. So I figured I I must have gotten through. (laughs) As adults, can we be so unarmed in our creative expression? while at the same time being mindful and really seeing clearly, receptive to the right answers that show up to our perennial questions regarding the way towards really being truly happy and at ease in this life. Can we be so unarmed so as to allow the life force within us to catalyze into creative life with a purity and intensity devoid of personal pride or self-judgment, no conceit of self, as the Buddha called it, and simply be what we are by birthright. One of the creative endeavors that's been part of my life off and on over the years since I was in my early 20s is the making of portrait sculpture with a particular person being the live model for each piece of work. This work has really been a very deep and powerful direct practice. 
and a metaphor for practice for me. Particularly in relationship to the cultivation of mindfulness, investigation, discernment, effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and wisdom, which are actually the seven factors of enlightenment. So I'd like to share just a little bit of this process as I think it might be a useful illustration in the context of our retreat here, and particularly as we enter into the scene-drawing portion of our practice. In order to create a likeness of a person in clay, a tremendous depth of mindful investigation must take place. A head, its shape, the neck and shoulders, the face. How to see it as a whole and then know it both in its wholeness and in its particulars so that the seeing and knowing can be transferred through the eyes, mind, heart, and body and out through the hands and fingers into the clay. A daunting and actually impossible task if one doesn't begin to see what one is looking at simply as hundreds, maybe thousands, of relationships that actually change with each angle of seeing. And so the subject's head and face begin to break down into a series of relational forms, forms that exist only in relationship to each other. There's no head, no face, no person as we ordinarily know it. There's just a series of relationships to be known. And it's a very intimate process, much more so than if I just keep looking at the whole form. The completely unique characteristics of the face in front of me become very clearly and very deeply known, but not as any fixed or separate entity. And the universals of all human faces become known quite intimately. At the same time, the concepts of solidity and fixedness and separateness lose their habitual potency and actually quite thoroughly fall away in moments. What is this nose, this eye, this chin, any nose, any eye, any chin? Seeing and knowing through the microscope of an open-hearted and deeply connected mindful investigation 
from revolving angles, moment after moment after moment. So for example, seeing and knowing the space between the inside corner of an eye in relationship to the downward slope of the eye's lower edge, in relationship to the bulging curvature of the eyeball as it rounds out to touch the outer edge and corner of the skin around the eye. And on and on and on like that. With all of this seeing and knowing coming out of my fingers, into forming the clay, little by little by little. And as though magically, a face emerges out of the clay. A face that in fact bears the likeness and projects some of the quality of the liveliness of this human being sitting in front of me. It's not so easy to render this creative process into words. So I hope uh, uh, what I've said has been at least somewhat communicated and at least somewhat helpful for you. As I think I've already mentioned, insight practice is itself an art. And in many ways, very close to the creative process. As I'm sure some of you are aware of or are becoming aware of. And as we'll continue discovering as this retreat continues to unfold. During one particular time period when I was very deeply immersed in sculpture work, I went to see a film at a theater, movie theater. And I was quite struck uh, that evening by all of the faces of all of the people in the lobby, each one having all of the same equipment. (laughs) Noses, eyes, mouths, cheeks, chins, foreheads. And yet each person's face being totally unique just based on the tiny nuances of how all the parts were interrelated. And my awareness that evening just kept jumping back and forth, back and forth, seeing the diversity in the one and the one in the diversity. That evening, for at least a few moments, they weren't separate. There's a, a very uh, special sutra in, um, the, in Mahayana Buddhist, Buddhism called the Avatamsaka Sutra, or the Flower Ornament Sutra. It's actually revered as uh, quite a treasure of uh, sensual imagery and considered to be one of the highest teachings of Buddhism in Chinese Mahayana Buddhism. And there's a short section in this uh, sutra that elaborates on my very brief and small experience that evening at the movie theater. 
And this is from the Flower Ornament Sutra. The Bodhisattva sees the interdependent nature of all things, sees in one dharma all dharmas, sees in all dharmas the one dharma, sees the multiplicity in the one and the one in the multiplicity, sees the one in the immeasurable and the immeasurable in the one, and in this case the immeasurable meaning the indescribable, the flow, the process of life as it unflows. And the sutra goes on and says, birth and existence of all dharmas is of a changing nature and thus unreal and cannot touch the enlightened ones. The nature of things, as we practice the nature of things, quite naturally reveals itself. It's not hidden. We enter into the mystery through the intimacy of our practice, rather than staying at a distance, rather than staying separate from it. The Japanese philosopher and teacher of tea, Yanagi, speaks about this in a very lucid and succinct way. And this is uh, from him. They saw, before all else they saw, they were able to see. Ancient mysteries flew from this wellspring of seeing. in very precise and sometimes minute ways, or at times in a much more spacious and less precise mode of mindfulness and investigation, we come to know the not-self, not-separate, non-dual nature of things. Anything. All things. Ordinary things. For a moment we touch into the absolute truth of the relative world and it makes a difference actually in how we live our life because on a deeply intuitive level we've contacted the cause of suffering and the way to its end mindfulness investigation and discernment are our guides through what at times may feel like an impenetrable forest of experience. As we all know, each one of us know, life can be challenging and difficult at times. Practice can be challenging and difficult at times. This is not new news for any of you. Along the way, we find that it takes a really deep willingness and a certain courage to traverse this path of awakening. And people sometimes describe their experience at particular points along the way of the path as feeling as though they're a spiritual warrior. 
I think that many of us, much of the time, view experience and view our life as a string of blessings or a string of curses. Through our practice, our life as our practice, we learn to not get caught up in the attachment to blessings and the aversion to curses. With mindful presence and clear discernment as the ground of our life, we learn to view and to relate to life as a continual opportunity to deepen our practice and to deepen our understanding. A continual opportunity for learning, really. With all of it affording us the amazing opportunity of awakening. And I think for many of us, if we're really truly candid, it may occasionally feel like we are a spiritual warrior in the process. Some years ago, it became clear that I needed to have an old filling removed and a crown put on this same molar. So, maybe a curse from one point of view. I'm severely, very severely allergic to an array of local anesthetics. So no Novocaine or any of the other uh, local anesthetics are, are able to be used for dental work for me. So maybe another curse from a particular point of view. But I have a very deep and strong practice. So definitely a great blessing. The appointment with the dentist, uh, that particular appointment, was really quite a challenge. The challenge of continually relaxing and staying open to the experience of the moment. Focusing and connecting with all that was going on in my mouth and noticing the constant change of each sensation. Sometimes a very strong, very intense sensation and sometimes a more mild sensation. Being present from its beginning through to its end. And as soon as I was, would lose my concentration, lose mindfulness, and the clarity of discernment, ignorance immediately would move in. And what was merely being experienced as varying degrees of unpleasant quickly became very strong disliking. And then the moment would verge on becoming an unbearable moment. And there was a moment during that particular dental appointment when I completely lost the concentrated mindful connection that was occurring and my body jerked really strongly in reaction to a particular sensation which surprised the dentist quite a bit (laughs) and was a real, real wake-up bell for me. And in moments, it was a great surprise to me how easy it was to be there, 
to just be there. As long as I was clearly and purely present, just with what was happening, just with what was happening, nothing else. Time lost its ordinary parameters, just like it sometimes does with intensive retreat practice. I wasn't waiting for the end of anything. And in fact, there were some surprising moments of feeling like, oh, I could, I could just stay here forever and that would be okay. <laughs> so what, what's a curse? What's a blessing? As our practice takes deeper and deeper root, its blessing really does begin to permeate all corners of our life. Mindfulness and investigation of state, grounded in interest and open-hearted, non-judgmental receptivity, is our guide through what at times might feel like an impenetrable forest of experience. We can't expect or depend on something outside of our own mind and heart or someone else to do it for us. The invitation is ehipasika, come and see. When we connect and really see clearly, the next step is right in front of us, one step at a time. So, a story, a brief story, uh, about hiking here in Taos. One autumn morning, um, some years ago, I went for a a day-long hike with a friend up into the mountains, uh, right on one of these trails that you take off this road here up in the ski valley. And my hiking buddy is a long-time Dharma practitioner, And so uh, the two of us, we like to hike in silence. And we usually walk alone. I mean, we're near each other, but we walk by ourselves. Uh, And often we speak together only during rest breaks and um, during our lunchtime. (coughs) And hiking days uh, uh, like this for me and for my friend are really some of our most treasured non-retreat practice times. There's a very deep and connected relationship through all of the sense doors to the surrounding world and to our bodily sensations and movement and to the feelings and various states that come up, come in and go from the mind and from the heart as we really take our time making our way up the trail. As we were uh, wending our way, uh, up through this Rocky Mountain landscape that day, two young people came up, quite young, I don't know, late teens or maybe maybe early 20s. Uh, two young people came up behind us and they were moving very fast. Actually, they were almost running up the mountain, which neither my friend or I could do even if we had to. But... <laughs> But these people were just almost running up the mountain and they each had a a small yellow plastic object in their hand 
which they were quite intently holding kind of up and out in front of them. So as they ran by us, we exchanged a kind of cursory hellos together. And I asked them uh, quickly, because they were moving so quickly, (laughs) what this yellow plastic object was. And I was told it was a GPS. Now, this was uh, a few years ago, and at that point I had no, I'd never heard of such a thing. I didn't know what it was. And they were in such a hurry, there was absolutely no opportunity time to ask, what is a GPS? So, they went on by, and I, my friend, I asked my friend, she knew what a GPS was, she knew a little bit about it, and she said that it was an instrument that tells you where you are. (laughs) And as soon as she said this, we both looked at each other with a kind of amazement, and we began to laugh, just like you're doing and we couldn't stop laughing for a long time. It just seemed so absurd. <laughs> so that particular day, where my friend and I were, all along the trail, was being connected with and known over and over and over again in so many ways and on so many levels as we were slowly making our way up the mountain this intermediary of a global positioning system seemed quite absurd at that point and in that setting. And a poem called Lost by David Wagner. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree a bush does is lost on you, you are truly, surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So again, ehi pasika, come and see. Come and see for yourself. The Buddha, with his great clarity and compassion, spoke about what he called the nutriment for the arising development and fulfillment and perfection of this enlightenment factor of investigation of states. He said that we must give a wise and careful attention to both beneficial and unbeneficial states. Beneficial states, for instance, such as loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, as well as to those so-called hindrances, sleepiness, restlessness, 
the wanting mind, the aversive mind, the doubting mind. He said it's essential that we give this wise and careful attention to states of suffering, to the cause of suffering itself, and to the end of suffering. And again and again and again, the Buddha directs us towards seeing and knowing the particular individual essence of both beneficial or wholesome and unbeneficial or unwholesome states. He again and again also directs us towards seeing and knowing the three universal characteristics of all states of body and mind. The essential unsatisfactoriness, the ephemerality, the changing nature, impermanence, and the selfless nature of all mental and bodily experiences. This is the primary nutriment for the arising development and fulfillment and the perfection of these factors of investigation and clear comprehension. With these factors being primarily what counters delusion, what counters ignorance. The Buddha also tells us that we should ask appropriate questions and that it's helpful to reflect on the real possibility of understanding. We're encouraged to associate with people who have understanding. And it's suggested by the Buddha that we don't spend too much time with those who don't have understanding. Not always so easy, but... The Buddha spoke in a very beautiful way about internal purification of the heart and mind as being, as he said, like the light of a lamp's flame that arises with a clean lamp bowl, wick, and oil as its support. And that bodily and mental formations become evident and clear to one who tries to comprehend them with a purified base, meaning a mind, a heart, that's cleansed through the moral integrity of sila and the purification of the heart and mind that comes through the development of concentration. Balancing the faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom or understanding will also nurture investigation. And at some point, we might find that we might like to make a resolve to incline the mind, to incline the heart towards these first two factors of enlightenment, the factors of mindfulness and investigation. And we are, actually, in this retreat, inclining the mind and the heart towards these two factors. Clear discrimination of bodily and mental states is really a requisite for liberation, a requisite 
for the arising of wisdom. And so in this light, the particular factor of investigation is spoken about as the wisdom factor. There's a difference between the person with the mind unconsciously steeped in me, mine, and I, and the one who lives, sees, senses, feels, and knows through a mind steeped in mindful awareness and investigation of states of body and mind. The difference is that in the narrowness of the mind steeped in me, mine, and I, there's a strong and very sticky identification with all of the hopes and all of the fears that arise, which is a very painful place to live one's life from. When the mind, the heart, is steeped in the factors of mindfulness and investigation, one isn't so often or even very often caught or thrown off, ruffled or confused by inner and outer events. And that takes time to develop. We see, we sense, we feel what is. And we know it beyond its seeming appearances. We aren't caught nearly as often by hopes and fears in relationship to the moment's experiences. They come and we let them go as they naturally do anyways. And as I said, this takes time, takes time. Our practice affords us the great potential gift of not clinging, not being identified with and attached to experience all of the time. What is, is just what is, moment to moment, more and more often. Mindfulness direct investigation and discrimination of experience is what brings the deepest understanding. Otherwise, our understanding is based only on the intellect. It's really merely cerebral understanding, a kind of imaginary understanding. And I think, as many of you know, at least some of the time, It's impossible to think our way out of tension, to think our way out of stress and confusion. It's impossible to really, truly think our way out of suffering. And it's impossible to think our way into really, truly letting go. We can't think our way to liberation. Awakening is beyond and beneath the intellect. It's beyond or beneath concept. So how can we possibly really use concept to get us there? When insight is born, 
when understanding is born, it's deep and integrated and really simple. It's cellular, as someone once described their experience to me. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj tells us the mind, the thinking mind, is interested in what happens, while mindful awareness is interested in the mind, the heart. The child is after the toy, but the mother watches the child, not the toy. With investigation, we move out of the dark and come into the light, the light of wisdom. And in reference to his own enlightenment, the Buddha said, the eye is born, knowledge was born, wisdom was born, understanding was born, light was born. As you sit, walk, eat, do your yogi job and learn to simply and easily let the body move. As you spend time learning to really truly see, which is what drawing flows from, and as you spend time open-heartedly writing, as you make your way through this retreat, rather than being caught up in old conditioned and sometimes unskillful habits, mindfulness, investigation, and clear discernment provide really the best medicine for the gift of engagement at its very best. Creative expression that occurs purely from our personal experience is an expression of our humanness expression of our perceptions of reality, beautiful or otherwise, spontaneous expression of sensing and feeling, or possibly a reflection of insight, a reflection of understanding. It's creative expression, creative work that in some way honestly conveys one's search for freedom without having come to a conclusion or expressing any particular answer without needing to do that. And all of this is part of the path towards reaching for understanding the essence of our beingness, for understanding the truth of ourselves. Even if in the process of creative expression, we may not be aware, may not be precisely conscious of these possibilities that are developing and blossoming along the way. As we explore various creative modalities through this retreat and in our life as a whole, with honesty and humility and an interested enthusiasm, we can be sure that this is an important and essential aspect 
of the path towards reaching and understanding the truth of ourselves, our not-self nature, and the not-self nature of all things. As we practice and learn, we find that our life is unfolding and blossoming more and more from the place of selflessness, from the place of a healthy emptiness, with the thread of self having been pulled out, we find that we experience creative expression flowing more spontaneously and freely in myriad ways throughout our life. As awakening beings, we're moving toward our inheritance from the Buddha by simply becoming a real human being. A very beautiful uh, description that one of my Burmese teachers, Sada Upandita, uses for one who is awake. A real human being. A wise, open-hearted, and caring human being with innate capacity for creativity and inventiveness flowing freely. And this is really the greatest gift that we can offer to this world. I'd like to close uh, with a poetic teaching from the Buddha. It's called A Single Excellent Night. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be be made. Tomorrow, death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is in her, it is in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. Let's just sit quietly for a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.